0: You're invited to join us on air asking your questions by calling in on the local rate phone numbers in the UK and the US, which can be found on ldnradio.org. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Dr Darren Ingalls. is sponsored by ingalls family health directed by dr darren ingalls is an international leader in the treatment of lyme disease autism and chronic immune disorders integrating the best of conventional and natural approaches to your health care visit darren ingalls MD, for more information and to start your journey to better health So, today we have with us Dr. Darren Ingalls, who is a licensed naturopathic physician in the state of Connecticut and a licensed doctor in naturopathic medicine in the state of California, where he maintains practices in both states. He is board certified in integrative pediatrics. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ingalls.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Linda, for having me.
0: So, we're really excited. Um, Lyme disease is a, a really hot topic. Uh, we actually had Dr. Brian Udell talking about autism um, last week and people are really, really interested not just in autism but for other conditions mm. where children can take LDN. Now, Dr. Brian Udell sticks to um, autism, so we would be really keen to learn from you about dosing and timing and what conditions that you treat um, children for. But before we start, perhaps you could tell us about yourself, where you trained, what qualifications you have, what experience you've gained that's made you the doctor you are today.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, Well, I am a naturopathic physician and uh, I've been practicing medicine for 18 years. Prior to becoming a naturopathic physician, I was a clinical microbiologist, so I'm a board-certified medical technologist, and I worked uh, in microbiology and immunology at a large teaching teaching hospital outside of Chicago, Illinois. So I I had a very broad background in microbiology and immunology going into medicine, and then just through my own clinical experience. And then in 2002, I got Lyme disease myself so, you know, nothing makes you a better doctor than to get a condition that you've been treating. So I, I got some firsthand experience in dealing with Lyme disease and all of the, you know, the nuances and complications that come along with that. So through my own personal journey, I really had an opportunity to explore, you know, different avenues of treatment, things I found were working well for myself and others, and, uh, ultimately compiled uh, a, a list of things that I found to be very beneficial. In fact, I, I have a book I just wrote on Lyme disease that will be coming out next year called The Lyme Solution, where I've really I've kind of you know compiled a, a very concise plan that people can follow on their own in dealing with Lyme disease. And I discuss a lot of these therapies that I found to be very beneficial. Uh, of course, one of those therapies being low-dose naltrexone, as a way of modulating the immune system. So so, uh, my background also includes, uh, I have a lot of experience in environmental medicine. So I've trained with the American Academy of Environmental Medicine and uh, I've studied a lot of their courses and really looking at all these different aspects of the environment that affect health. And that includes things like diet, uh, chemicals in the environment, things like mold And so, you know, we really look closely at a lot of these different uh, factors that we get exposed to on a day-to-day basis that ultimately undermine our immune system and our health. Uh, So I've incorporated that as part of my practice as well. So, you know, I kind of say that, you know, my practice really gears around immune dysfunction, and it just so happens that Lyme disease and autism and asthma and eczema and all these other conditions you know, the red line that runs through it is that there's this element of of immune dysfunction. So ultimately our goal is to try and find ways to help identify what that underlying problem is and then finding, you know, effective treatments to help overcome that problem.
0: And what would you say are environmental triggers for children? I mean, are children uh, becoming ill more often than they were years ago?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, even since I started practicing 18 years ago, I've seen more and more young children with chronic health problems. In fact, I think if you look at the latest research, uh, at least in the United States, more than 50% of children have a chronic health problem. And what chronic health problem means is something like asthma, diabetes, obesity, and so forth. You know, it's not just the cold and flu and normal childhood illnesses. We're seeing these problems that are plaguing children, of things that last, you know, months to years. So there's no doubt that environment has definitely played a a contributing role in why we're seeing more sick kids. And, you know, I I think it's a laundry list of things that are, are contributing to that. I would argue that diet is probably the single biggest factor of what is affecting children's health and that, you know, a lot of parents are very busy, they're looking at convenience foods, things that are very easy to prepare, but not necessarily the most healthier, nutritious foods for children and things that are really going to help their growth and development. You know, things like artificial food colorings and flavors and preservatives and all these things that really aren't food uh, can become immune triggers, can undermine the immune system, can affect the brain, and I think, you know, that's That's the one thing I see in my practice. Uh, When someone brings a child in that has one of these chronic health problems, really the first thing we look at is what they're eating. And in many cases, that is a significant part of what's making them sick. You know, in addition to that, I think kids are just getting exposed to a lot of different chemicals out there in the world, be it, you know, uh, cleaning chemicals in the school, things that get used in the home, you know, uh, plug-ins that, you know, diffuse some kind of scent in the home, Laundry detergents—you—you uh, you just can't go anywhere anymore without having exposure to, you know, numerous chemicals. In fact, we know that the average American gets to exposed to, to over eighty thousand chemicals in a single year. So you can imagine, for a small body weight child, that's just a tremendous amount of uh, stuff that the body has to process and clear. And you know, as we learn more and more about genetics, you know, we understand that some people are just born with a genetic disposition that they're really not very efficient at clearing out chemicals and their detoxification pathways really don't work very well. So if you're genetically disposed that way and you have a lot of exposure that increases your body burden, uh, that combination can just set a child up for being, you know, quite ill.
0: I had a, a lady today who called and she said her grandson... Only lived on milkshakes. That's all he liked. He wasn't interested in food. And the parents didn't make him eat. And he's 10. And she said that he's very short, very tiny, so petite and thin. Um, she doesn't know how he manages to stand up. He, he's so thin. And she said, how can she make him eat healthy food? I don't know. I've never had that <clears throat> that problem myself with with family trying to get them to eat but if you had um, a patient come to you with a child who didn't who refused to eat anything else how can you educate the parents to help the children have a healthier diet i mean a 10 year old is is quite stubborn (laughs)
1: Oh, yes. Look, I have kids in my practice that are extremely stubborn as we're trying to institute new diet patterns, new ways of eating. Uh, I've seen kids sometimes go several weeks with barely touching anything that the parents try to introduce into their diet because it's actually healthy, but it looks weird and it smells weird and it's not, you know, a convenience food. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, like a milkshake. So, you know, there definitely is a, a time period where, You know, you have to kind of be slow and methodical about introducing new foods to children, particularly at that age. And I I think my best advice for parents is this all has to start very early in life. And what I see is a lot of parents, uh, from the get-go, kids are given, you know, uh, little ODOs or something like that as their first snack food, which is, you know, loaded with sugar and preservatives. So I think the child's palate from the get-go gets used to those kind of foods. And I look uh, at American children relative to other children in you know, Africa and Europe where I don't see this early addiction to convenience foods. And I think it's just the way that the children are brought into the food world and how foods are introduced into their diet, that their palate from an early stage develops so that they're used to eating real food. And I've seen, you know, children come from other parts of the world to the U.S. who won't eat a lot of the foods that American children will eat. They just think it's disgusting because they've actually grown up eating real food. And to them, you know, the chemical taste of it just isn't appealing. So the best thing a parent can do is from the get-go is start, you know, introducing real, whole organic foods, fruits, vegetables, you know, show the child diversity of textures and taste and flavors and smells. And I think that that helps the child accommodate to eating, you know, various different foods as they get older. Now, if you've already missed that point and it's said the child's 10 and they're already used to eating milkshakes, you know, it is a bit more challenging. But the good news is, you know, it is built into our DNA that, you know, when we're hungry, we will eat. And sometimes there is a little bit of a struggle between the child and the parent of getting them to eat new healthy foods. But I sort of equate it like getting a drug addict off a drug. You know, you have to go through that period of breaking that cycle because in some ways when they eat these foods, they do get a good feeling. It is very satisfying for them. And when you pull that away, they don't get that instant gratification and they can get very irritable and crabby. Uh, But if you can break that cycle, often I find is that kids will be open to trying new foods, will start to eat, you know, more uh, new things that perhaps they kind of shoved away initially. And in really, really severe cases, I actually encourage to recruit a behavior therapist to come in and help the parent, you know, basically teach the parent how to introduce new foods to their child because they're the experts at the behavior part. And although a parent can come up with really great ideas of new healthy foods for a child to eat, if they refuse it, it can just become a struggle at the dinner table. So sometimes getting some professional help to give you some guidance on the best way to introduce foods and there's really lots and lots of creative ways that that can be done. And I find, you know, even hiding vegetables in a meatball, I find most kids will eat a meatball. So if you can, you know, grind up, you know, some uh, kale and chard and blend it into your meatball and give the kid meatball, great. At least now they're starting to get some vegetables into their diet, which is more nutrient-dense foods. And even something as simple as that can be an introduction to starting to transition a child's diet.
0: Mm. And talking about um, autism, what would you say the main triggers for autism are?
1: In terms of what causes autism? Yes, Well, I think that's a very complex question, and of course, none of us really know the answer. Uh, my experience is uh, it's been it's been a very broad scope of things that on the surface seem to trigger autism. I've had children who were born with autism that never developed normally. Uh, The vast majority of my patient population, these children were developing normally, and then many of them after receiving vaccinations started to regress. I've had some children who had birth trauma. I've had other children who were doing well until they got a certain infection, and after the infection, they regressed into autism. So I, I don't think there's any one cause uh, I think there are multiple causes. But I think, again, the, the common theme is that there's something along the way that's a disruption to the immune system. And once that occurs, uh, neural development starts to shift.
0: How easy is it to help families with an autistic child for that child to lead a relatively healthy life?
1: Well, autism is challenging for many many reasons, you know, because you're dealing with so many different facets of of the child. You know, we think of autism as really being the sort of, you know, neurodevelopmental problem, but most of the children I work with have many many physical problems on top of that. A lot of them have gastrointestinal problems, they're chronically constipated or chronic diarrhea, they have a lot of abdominal pain. So a lot of the behaviors we see are really just a child that doesn't feel well. And because often they lack the language to express themselves if they have a headache, if they have a bellyache, if their arm hurts, you know, they just can't express it in a way that's meaningful to us or the parents. And what we see is, you know, aggressive behavior, acting out, or sometimes what we call stereotypic behavior or what they call stimming, where a child might flap their hands, spin in a circle, uh, do weird things with their eyes, And I think that's a way that they're trying to relieve some of that that pain or anxiety that that happens. But I think, you know, there's a lot we can do to make the child healthy. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, a big part of it is really starting with the gut and starting with the diet. So uh, when an autistic child comes into my practice, the, the first two things we look at are intestinal health, gut health, and looking at what they're eating and of course the two aren't mutually exclusive of each other but often we'll find that many of these kids they've got a disruption in their normal gut ecology and whether it's because they've been on antibiotics as a younger child uh, or perhaps they were born by c-section and they were never inoculated with you know the normal flora they should have received again you know, there can be many possibilities but uh, you know it's important to understand what's going on at the gut level And, you know, 80% of your immune function comes from the gut. So if the gut's not functioning well, it's very hard for the immune system to function well. And every autistic child I work with is very different. But, again, the one theme that's very common and it's well-documented in the medical literature is that there is this element of immune dysfunction. And I will extend that to even say not just immune dysfunction but autoimmunity And I think that's a lot of what triggers the type of things that we see and associate with autism.
0: What about dosing for children with autism? Do you recommend the cream and how do you work out what dose to start with?
1: Yeah, so I uh, come from the camp of I like to start small. And, you know, part of naturopathic philosophy is that, you know, we want to use the the minimum amount of anything to get the best clinical effect. So I tend to start at very low doses, and I've even started as low as half a milligram. And I'll do half a milligram at bedtime for two weeks, and depending on how the child's responding, if there's really no significant improvement, we'll go up to one milligram. And so I like to go up even by half milligram increments, uh, depending on the weight of the child, but certainly for any child under the age of eight, that's the way that I would typically approach it. And, you know, I've been surprised. I mean, sometimes even very low doses uh, that I don't really expect to do much. I mean, I've had children even on half a milligram, the parents report back to me that, wow, I mean, he just just seems like he's doing so much better. Uh, And great, you know, if we can get away by using lower doses, I think that's that's wonderful. But uh, I'll usually go up in half milligram increments And by and large, for most kids, I rarely go beyond three milligrams more often than I don't find it's necessary. Uh, Certainly, if it's an older child, I I may go up to four, four and a half milligrams. But uh, by and large, I find anywhere from one to three milligrams for most kids I work with with autism. Most kids will respond somewhere in that dosing range. Mm -hmm.
0: So for the children that take LDN for autism, Do the parents ever give you feedback of any adverse effects?
1: Off the top of my head, I can think of two kids that uh, the biggest complaint was just their sleep was really horrible. Now, in all fairness, in both these children, their sleep was already horrible to begin with, uh, but they went from bad to worse. Uh, And, of course, this is sort of a well-known potential side effect of LDN anyway, but uh, by and large, I mean, it's been very well tolerated. And I kind of feel like by starting off at very small doses and titrating up slowly, that probably gives the body a better chance to acclimate to it anyway. And, uh, again, I really haven't seen any other negative effects other than, again, a couple of kids that, that had some sleep issues. But I certainly haven't seen any uh, regression in behavior, or more stimming behavior, uh, anything that's negative in that way.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, well, we'll just have a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you. To listen to individual radio shows and interviews, go to www.mixcloud.com forward slash LDNRT. I'll repeat that. It's www.mixcloud.com. O-U-D dot com forward slash L-D-N-R-T This show is sponsored by Ingalls Family Health directed by Dr. Darren Ingalls is an international leader in the treatment of Lyme disease Autism and Chronic Immune Disorders, integrating the best conventional and natural approaches to your health care. Visit darreninglesnd.com for more information to start your journey to better health. Thank you. Welcome back. Well, that was really interesting, Um, Darren. Thank you very much. And and what about children with Lyme disease? Are you finding some children are actually being born with Lyme disease or are they infected with ticks or how are they managing to...
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really great question, and I, I've seen a, a lot of children with Lyme disease, uh, and especially the young children, uh, a lot of these children have mothers that also have Lyme disease. So, unfortunately, there's nothing in the testing that can differentiate what was passed on potentially from the mother and her antibodies versus a child that may have had his, his or her own tick bite. Uh, If you look at the medical literature, it will tell you that there's no known maternal transmission of Lyme disease to children. That's what the medical literature says. What the medical literature does show is that moms that have Lyme disease have a higher risk of children being born with birth defects. In saying that, though, I have seen many, many children who were born to mothers who had Lyme disease that seem to exhibit a lot of similar characteristics that their mothers have in having Lyme disease. And as a former microbiologist and understanding blood-borne diseases, you know, as far as I know, when you're a pregnant mom, you know, you share blood with your baby for almost 10 months. So I think it makes a lot of sense that something that can be sped through blood can be passed on. Now, it may look different than typical classic Lyme disease we would see an adult, but I've seen children that have various, again, neurodevelopmental issues. Uh, wandering joint pain other types of things that aren't otherwise explained and i see kids who go to their pediatrician or even a rheumatologist and they get a very thorough you know workup and different blood work and nothing really comes back and can explain why they have this myriad of symptoms and yet you know we do antibody tests and sometimes we'll see that they have antibodies that suggest they might have had exposure to Lyme disease And often, you know, I'll treat them even empirically, and we'll see improvement. And, for example, I have a child in my one practice who I started working with about a month ago, and mom has had Lyme disease for uh, over seven years. Her son is now six, and he was hospitalized about a month ago with uh, unexplained fever that ran about 104 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. And he had joint pain and just a very unhappy child. And after two weeks of going through various tests, they couldn't find any explanation of why he had these high fevers and the joint pain. And what was striking is that his joint pain, you know, wandered from one joint to another. And as far as I know, and uh, after studying a lot of bugs, I don't know of any other organism in the world that causes that kind of symptom other than Lyme disease. So we, uh, and the doctors at the hospital actually, uh, this was in California, and his doctor actually refused to even test him for Lyme disease, saying there is no Lyme disease in California, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous because it's been reported numerous times. But despite that, we tested him when he was discharged, and sure enough, he's got evidence that he has exposure to Lyme. So is it possible that he's carried these antibodies from his mother for six years? Probably not. That's not the way the immune system generally works. So I think it's likely that he had separate exposure. And this is a family who does spend a lot of time outdoors and uh, and he's out playing in the fields. And so I think it's very possible he got exposed to uh, to the organism. But we started treating him with herbs uh, empirically. And after about ten days of herbal therapy, his symptoms almost completely abated. The fevers broke. His joints feel great, and in fact, I just had a conversation with the mother less than a week ago, and he's doing great and feels fine. So, was it Lyme disease? I think it's very probable, but uh, I think you know this this sort of speaks to the complexity of Lyme, especially in children, as to you know we're always trying to figure out you know when they got exposed, how they got exposed, if they got exposed. And unfortunately, with the current testing that's available, we don't really have a great way of measuring Lyme directly in the body. It's a very hard organism to culture. And even with some of the current DNA testing that's available, like PCR testing, uh, it's just not very sensitive. So it misses a lot of people who have known Lyme disease. So our technology hasn't quite caught up yet to being able to definitively say, you know, yes, you have Lyme in you now, and it's active you know, the best that we have are these antibody tests that at least give us some idea about whether a child has had exposure.
0: Wow. I'm, I've spoken to many people that have um, got Lyme disease <clears throat> and the things that they go through. I mean, it's awful, all these different co-infections and things. But if you have a mother with Lyme disease and she has passed that on to her baby and the baby is very restless and crying and and not happy, how would you go about treating a baby with Lyme disease? How would you first know it's Lyme disease?
1: Yeah, for infants uh, and toddlers, uh, one of the the safest ways that i found is uh, I like to use a series of liquid herbs that were developed by Dr. Lee Cowden, uh, he's a medical doctor here in the U.S., a cardiologist actually, who sort of haphazardly ended up treating, treating a relative that had Lyme disease. And from that, it sort of became a passion and a specialty of his. But uh, these herbs are all derived from South America. And uh, they've actually been studied uh, by a researcher at the University of New Haven here in Connecticut and uh, have found to be very, very effective at treating Lyme. But they've also been shown to be very safe. And what I like about these tinctures is that you can use drop doses for children, and even these very small doses, because the herbs are very potent and concentrated, uh, seems to be, again, very effective at helping you know, get rid of Lyme. So for uh, my young kids, uh, I like a series of, uh, of these tinctures. Dr. Cowden himself has a very uh, broad protocol where you take a series of herbs for one month, and then next month you change to a different set. And over the course of five months, you cycle through a series of various herbs. And it is very effective, but I've sort of found that you can tailor down to just a few of those herbs, and that combination alone seems to work really well for a lot of people. So I kind of call it my modified Cowden Protocol, and uh, that tends to be my go-to for young children.
0: It's just amazing, isn't it, how years ago, before there was the modern medicine everybody was having herbs and f- finding out which plants were to help you and it seems as though we've gone full well, cycle you know,
1: is, exactly you know it's funny uh, there's a, a book that many doctors use called the merck manual obviously the the drug company merck is the one who publishes it but they celebrated their 100 year anniversary uh in 1999 so they released the one to hundred year version of the Merck Manual from 1899, and what was amazing as you look through it, it was all herbs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, this was the the go to treatment. So, you know, as as what happens in medicine, you know, if something starts to fall out of favor, it's not because it didn't work. It's just because something else came along that was shinier and sexier, and you know, good marketing uh, to get you know certainly doctors to stop using well-used uh, well, well used and well-studied therapy because now there's something newer and they'll tell you it's better. And uh, But, you know, herbs have a very long tradition of use and, uh, you know, we've been using herbs for millennia in various cultures and uh, a lot of these herbs and certainly in the last maybe 50, 60 years, we've really understood more about the pharmacology of these herbs. So we've studied plant constituents and we know that many of these plants In fact, actually, a lot of drugs that get used are derived from these plants, and we discovered these drugs from the plant. So we know that plants have a lot of potent capacity to deal with, you know, various maladies. It's just uh, kind of convincing people that it's okay to use a plant and that, uh, you know, plants by and large, uh, when used correctly, can be very safe and very effective. And certainly when it comes to Lyme disease, I'll put any plant up, at least the plants that we use, up against antibiotics any day, and I feel like my success has been as good or better than a lot of other doctors that are only using antibiotics and don't use any plant therapy at all.
0: by Ingalls Family. This show was sponsored by Ingalls Family Health directed by Dr Darren Ingalls as an international leader in the treatment of Lyme disease, autism and chronic immune disorders, integrating the best of conventional and natural approaches to your health care. Visit DarrenIngallsND.com for more information and to start your journey to better health. You were saying about using the herbs for five months. Does that mean in that period of time you've got the Lyme disease under control or are you able to stop it in its tracks and remove it, eradicate it, or is it always there but dormant? Can you actually kill well, it?
1: Well, you know, it's a great question. We we do know that Lyme has the capacity to truly be a shapeshifter and it's got three main forms it can cycle through. There's its normal adult form, which is called the spirochete. So it's kind of this corkscrew, corkscrew shaped organism, but it can actually ball itself up into a round ball, and this is called the the cyst form or the round body form. Uh, and so you know, as it cycles in and out of these different phases, when it goes into that round body form, It essentially becomes dormant, you know, it can hide inside your cells, hide inside your tissues, very difficult for the immune system to identify it and eradicate it. So the best chance of getting at it is when it's in this uncoiled uh, adult form. Um, And we know that even certain antibiotics, you know, don't work well when it goes into this dormant phase. So the question of, you know, do you ever get rid of Lyme disease completely? I don't think has really been fully answered just because we don't have the capacity to measure Lyme directly in the body. My personal opinion is I don't think we do. I think Lyme disease becomes a disease of management. But much in the way that you know you can get chicken pox as a five-year-old and then get shingles as a 55-year-old, it's the same virus that stays in your body for 50 years. But given the right set of circumstances, if your immune system tanks becomes compromised, now that virus can become active and you start to become symptomatic. So I think in the case of Lyme, what we're really trying to do is manage it to a level to the point where it's not bothering you anymore and triggering these symptoms. But one of the things I talk about in my book is, you know, Lyme has this capacity to trigger an autoimmune problem. And I think that's what gets overlooked a lot in the treatment of Lyme disease is that the focus solely becomes on killing the bug. But if the organism has triggered any kind of autoimmune problem, even when you eradicate the organism, you're still left with that autoimmune problem. So this is why the treatment of Lyme has to be much more comprehensive than just killing the bug because that's only the first part of that whole process of of getting over Lyme disease. So that's why I think it's important that you know, you're know you looking at, again, all these environmental factors and diet and gut health and everything else that affects the immune system because ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to shift that balance in the immune system so that you're not overexpressing this autoimmune, this autoimmune process.
0: I know that many of our members have Lyme disease. When a patient comes to see you for the first time when they haven't been diagnosed but they think they have Lyme disease, What is the process that you go through to work out um, the best plan on getting them healthy?
1: Well, the first step is to try and help identify, you know, what their exposure is. Is it Lyme or is it potentially some other microbe? You know, the reason that these organisms become problematic, there's a, a concept in immunology called molecular mimicry. And what that means is that there's molecules on the organism that are either similar or identical to molecules within our own tissue. And so as the immune system goes to attack the organism, it doesn't discriminate what's us and what's the bug and therefore starts to attack both. And this is well documented in the medical literature for various you know, common autoimmune conditions. And there are numerous bacteria and even viruses that have the capacity to do this. Lyme just happens to be extremely efficient at doing this. So I think just trying to establish, you know, what is the underlying cause of the symptoms? Is it just Lyme? Is it Lyme with co-infection? Is it Lyme with strep, Uh, mycoplasma, Bartonella, Babesia, so forth, so we have to understand what we're dealing with. Once we have that understanding, then for me, there are several different herbal protocols that I use Uh, I mentioned Dr. Cowden's, I use that with children, I also do use it with adults. Uh, There's another protocol developed by Dr. Zhang, he's a Chinese medical doctor who practices in New York City. He was the person I saw when I was dealing with Lyme disease after having been on antibiotics for almost a year and feeling absolutely horrible. Uh, I was introduced to him, and he treated me, and he really pulled me out of the weeds. So uh, I have a great debt of gratitude to him in helping me, and now I've used his protocol to help many other Lyme patients, you know, start to get over Lyme. Um, so once we start them on you know, the herbs, then we start, you know, working on their diet. We start looking closer at their gut health. I do a full sort of environmental uh, uh, control of everything else that's in their, their home, their work that might be affecting them. So we start talking about, you know, cleaning up their home, getting away from using toxic chemicals, getting away from, you know, using pesticides and herbicides on their lawn, uh, making sure that they're not using, you know, detergents and things of that nature that have, you know, other uh, chemicals in it that might be harming them and undermining their immune system. And then beyond that, you know, we talk about other lifestyle factors. You know, most of the Lyme patients I see are terrible sleepers, and sleep is that time when you have the opportunity to repair and restore your body. So if you're not sleeping well, it's going to be very hard to get over any chronic illness, let alone Lyme. So we work on strategies to try and help improve sleep. And I think exercise is very important for Lyme patients. And I know myself, when I was in the, the throes of it, doing any type of physical activity seemed really daunting and, and not possible. But I found that, you know, there's always a little something most people can do. Uh, I mean, I've, I haven't had Lyme patients in wheelchairs that they're limited in what they can do, but there are still some things they can do. So as much as we can move the body and get the circulation moving, I think that's good for people's mental state of health and ultimately their physical state of health. So. You know, I think you have to think of Lyme disease as, as, as several layers that we have to work through and seeing where are those elements of dysfunction, and as we identify them, we start to correct them, and ultimately with the goal of getting over that hump so that people can control their Lyme, they're no longer experiencing symptoms, and then from there really trying to keep their immune system healthy so that they don't get recurrences. And again, I've seen people who were symptom-free for long periods of time, and then they go through some very stressful event. You know, they get divorced or there's a death of a family member, and they start to experience symptoms again. So I, I think for me that's part of what leads me to believe that we don't really get rid of Lyme. We control it just because it seems unlikely that they happen to get another tick bite at the same time they were having this very stressful event in their life. But we know that, you know, when your body undergoes a lot of stress, it can undermine your immune system and dispose you to having other types of infection pop out. So um, I have seen people who do get recurrences from time to time. But, you know, as we start working through this stepwise progression, you know, many of the people I work with, you know, do start to feel better. And that's ultimately our goal.
0: And how soon do you start people on LDN with Lyme disease? Do you wait until they've been on the herbal therapy or do you start LDN Initially, where does that come into play?
1: Oh, yeah. So I typically like to start the herbs first. Uh, I think, you know, it does help bring the load of the organism down. And as you bring the load of the organism down, that does take some pressure off the immune system. You know, if you think of your body treating uh, Lyme disease like an allergen instead of a pathogen, it's a different part of the immune system that's engaged. We want to try and quell some of that, that inflammation that occurs so I usually like people to be on herbs for about a month first, and then at that point, then I'll start them on the LDN.
0: Great. Okay, well, we'll just have another quick break, and we'll be back in just one minute. The LDN Research Trust has its own forum, which can be found at forum.ldnresearchtrust.org or via our website. The forum is divided into sections, so it's easy to navigate and find what you're looking for. You can share your experience, ask questions, keep a journal, etc. Unlike Facebook, the posts are always easy to find and don't get buried. We have a private medical professionals only section. To find out more, please email me, Linda, at ldnrt.org. This show is sponsored by Ingalls Family Health, directed by Dr. Darren Ingalls, is an international leader in the treatment of Lyme disease, autism and chronic immune disorders, integrating the best of conventional and national approaches to your health care. Visit DarrenIngallsND.com for more information and to start your journey to better health. Thank you and welcome back. We haven't yet spoken about um chronic immune disorders and I would like to discuss that in children, if that's okay. Of course. So what are the so, chronic uh... immune disorders you're seeing?
1: So probably the biggest chronic immune disorders uh, can probably fall under the umbrella of of allergies, asthma, and eczema. You know, they call this the, the atopic triad. So these are, you know, very common allergies. But an allergy itself really is an immune dysfunction. Your body has identified something that's a normal part of your world and is treating it as if it's not normal. So something along the way has sensitized somebody to being uh, having an immune response to you know things that you know float around in the air and you breathe in or you ingest. And uh, again, you know, we've seen this massive increase in allergies and asthma in, in Western society around the world. So it's not unique to the United States. You see it in the UK. You see it in most places in Europe. And uh, I think again, it, it probably speaks to. Multiple factors, uh, including you know chemical exposure, diet, and so forth. Uh, But uh, again, we've just seen more and more children, you know, experiencing these uh, these conditions. And I'll even say, starting at an earlier age, you know, I think when I first started practicing, I saw very few children under the age of five or six that had you know hay fever, you know, regular run-of-the-mill allergies. Uh, and, you know, asthma to a certain degree, but I'm seeing more people now at, you know, 18 months, two years old, that are having severe asthma and severe hay fever. And, you know, I mean, eczema has always been a childhood problem, so I don't think that's changed as much. But definitely for for hay fever and asthma, I've seen more younger children who've started to develop these problems. And And then I just see kids who get sick a lot, You know, the parents complain that, boy, every cold and flu that comes along, he's the first kid to get it, he's the last one to get rid of it. And so I think to a certain degree that speaks to the level of how well a child's immune system is functioning. Mm.
0: So what do you do to help these children? How do you approach it?
1: So, yeah, so for kids that are having these type of issues, Uh, The first thing we usually do is we do various types of allergy testing to try and help identify what the allergens are that are triggering the response. And then we use a therapy called sublingual immunotherapy. So sublingual immunotherapy are drops that can be administered under the tongue that contain each of the allergens that a child might be sensitive to. And the concept is a little bit like allergy shots. So by giving you what you're actually sensitive to, At a specific concentration, it actually starts to help build the immune tolerance so you become less sensitive or less allergic to that compound. So if a child was allergic to dust or ragweed, we can give them drops of dust or ragweed, and over time we keep increasing the dose and build their immune tolerance. And eventually it gets to the point where they no longer have that sensitivity at all. And, again, I've used LDN in children with these type of issues because, again, the fundamental immune problem that's happening is really the same. Uh, In immunology, there's these cells called T helper cells, or they're called TH cells, and there's TH1 and TH2. And without making everybody an immunologist, very simply, you can think of TH1 cells being the direct scavengers of the immune system. So when they see a virus or bacteria, they go right after it and try to eliminate it where Th2 cells are the cells that are really more involved with antibody production. So they need a messenger to tell them that there's a problem before they can really react. But these Th2 cells are the cells that are more involved in allergy and autoimmunity. And we kind of think of the balance of Th1 and Th2 being a little bit like a seesaw. As one goes up, the other goes down and vice versa. Because as Th1 cells go up, they secrete a chemical that suppresses Th2 and the reverse is true. So what happens for people who have a lot of allergies, a lot of autoimmune problems, they're really in a TH2 dominant state. So they're basically producing a lot of these antibodies that are not good antibodies, they're, they're often autoantibodies, and yet their ability to fight infection on its own can be compromised. So what we're really trying to do is tip the scales again and get more balance in that TH1, TH2 ratio. So sublingual immunotherapy is a way that we can try and help restore some of that balance.
0: And do these children actually recover and continue growing up without these chronic immune disorders?
1: Absolutely. And I've uh, found that the sooner we start, the faster it goes and the less likelihood of seeing other allergies that develop further down the line. You know, when I see children who come into my practice at, you know, two, three, four, five years old, when we're able to deal with their allergies early in life, the likelihood of them developing allergies as they get older seems to go down much less. Now, I mean, I've only been in practice for 18 years, so I haven't been able to follow these kids for 30 years or 40 years to see what will happen when they become older adults. But so far, my experience is that when I see these kids as they become preteens and teens and move into their early 20s, I, I just haven't seen them you know, start to develop new or different allergies. So I think there's a great possibility when you can catch it early in life that you can start to manipulate the immune system in a way that it becomes less uh, sensitive as they get a little bit older.
0: Mm. And do you, with these children, use liquid LDN?
1: Uh, you know, I have not used the the liquid LDN as much. Uh, it's probably just more of the uh, the pharmacies that I work with here in the United States, uh, because the uh, I use one particular pharmacy just because they have the cheapest price point. And so often I'll just have the parents, if the child can't swallow the tablet, they'll just crush the tablet up in a little bit of liquid and squirt it in their mouth. So that seems to have worked pretty well for uh, for children. Um, So, yeah, I've used the the tablets more than anything else. Mm
0: -hmm. So getting back to Lyme disease, you gave us the name of the book there, The Lyme Solution. When is that likely to be out?
1: Uh, My scheduled launch date right now is April 3rd of 2018. So we got got a few months till it gets released. But uh, so far, that's what they're telling me.
0: Have you completed it yet?
1: Yes, the book is done. (laughs) I had no idea that it takes takes about a year once you actually finish the book to get it through all the proper channels of marketing and distribution. So the book is done. It's literally just sitting there waiting to be printed and distributed to all of the booksellers. So I think it's going to be a very long, almost year-long wait. But (laughs) uh, unfortunately, that's the way the publishing industry works.
0: Well, I was asked to compile an LDM book, and I think it was April, and it was going to be launched at the conference last year in February. I think I had 16 doctors writing chapters, and they had, for it to be launched on time, I had to have all their chapters complete, I think, by the middle of June, something like this. So it was contacting them, saying, would you please write a chapter on this topic on LDN? And by the way, you've got six weeks to go. And and every single doctor did it. And I was thinking, okay, June. Now we haven't got, you know, we have until um, February. For, for it to be launched. I had no idea. It was edited, like, f- by three different people, and then I thought, okay, we're done. Whew, it's all finished. But then it had to go to the proofreader. <laughs> and, yes. and it was just like... Yes. An, there one are price. many layers. I know. I, and I was very naive, and I ha- I had no idea. And it was actually printed three weeks early, and I just could not believe you could get a book done with so many people it was so difficult to uh actually do that. well that, that the,
1: the stars must have been aligned for you it's uh it is a an incredible task and i think you know between yeah writing and editing and going through multiple layers of editing you know it was uh quite quite tedious but you know we also got some really good feedback and You know, I'm writing it as the position of a a doctor. I mean, I've also been a patient, so I I have that unique perspective. But there's still a way that the book needs to be written so that it really, it's understandable for people and they can really get the most out of it. So that's where a good editorial staff can really make a huge difference.
0: Mm. So it's not only a a book to help educate doctors, but it's like a self-help book for the patient. Is that right?
1: Yeah, this book is very specifically written for Lyme patients that this is stuff that you can do at home. And I do have a chapter and a half that's really therapies that you'll want to work with a doctor, including LDN, uh, things that might be prescription or, you know, you'll just need the guidance of a, a physician to help you. But the bulk of the book is really this is what you can do. So I really wanted to empower Lyme patients. Uh, to take control over at least as much as you can. And it's it's been amazing to me, you know, when people start implementing the program, how many people, even if they've already done a lot of other things for their Lyme, really start to feel improvement in their health. So uh, I really wanted this to be uh, a book for, for people so that they can start to take control over their own health.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I'm on your website, and you've got some uh, very good tips there and there's even a recipe for strawberry coconut and thyme ice cream which looks beautiful and I can see that you have maple syrup in there so if and it's a, a you have this blog you also have your email address and your phone number there and I can see there are other recipes and you've got all the archiving there is it a blog where people can actually talk to each other, or do you have a Facebook group?
1: Uh, we have both, actually. So if you go to uh you can sign up for our email list. There's also a link for our Facebook account. Uh, I actually have two Facebook accounts. I have one for just Darren Ingles ND, and then I also have one specifically for Lyme patients, and it's at Lyme Expert and where I just post exclusively content related to Lyme disease. But uh, we have a lot of really useful information. We post recipes that are very healthy and nutritious. And, again, we're just trying to give people as much you know, useful information that they can use in their day-to-day life. So I'd love for people to follow me, and uh, hopefully they'll get a lot of you know, really useful information out of it.
0: Mm. I'm just looking. I mean, the recipes look absolutely fantastic. What is monk um, fruit? Logan Stroke so, Monk Fruit.
1: fruit. Uh, yeah, monk Fruit is an Asian fruit. Uh, it's got a very unique flavor to it. Um, I, I was introduced to it oh, maybe, maybe two years ago, and uh, it's just a really uh, delicious fruit. And uh, I've really appreciated some of the, the fruits that come out of Asia that we really don't see much here in the U.S., Uh, But I spend part of my time in California where they seem to import a little bit more of that kind of stuff. Uh, But it's got a very nice, uh, sweet flavor to it. Uh, I can't say it tastes like anything else, like other fruits you might have had. It has its own unique flavor, but uh, it's sweet and it tastes very good. So uh, if people have an opportunity to try it, I would definitely recommend it.
0: Hmm. And I see that you are promoting um, organic food. Over here organic food is yes. very very expensive and not only that it doesn't seem to stay fresh for very long it um if you don't cook it instantly you know vegetables they start to wilt and get past their best quickly what's it like over there
1: Uh, It's pretty much the same. You know, I mean, the United States, you know, we like to have every food available all year round, so we'll import it from all over the world. But to do that, you know, you've got to preserve it in some way. So we have the same issues with organic food that once you buy it, you've got about three days before it goes bad, and it can be very expensive. But uh, what I recommend for people, if they're really being budget conscious, which I think most people are, is uh, there's a a group called the Environmental Working Group. It's ewg.org, and they have a list called the Dirty Dozen if you've never seen it. And so these are the top 12 most chemically treated foods. So my feeling is if you can at least avoid the Dirty Dozen, stay away from those foods, uh, that's going to be uh, beneficial. And by the way, that list seems to change year after year, so you have to go every year and look online, and they, they post what the Dirty Dozen of the year is. Uh, But, you know, cherries is almost always on that list. Grapes is almost always on that list. Um, Peanuts are almost always on that list. So you'll see some foods from year to year that are consistently. So it's like if you're going to spend the money on organic, those are the foods you probably want to spend money on. And some of the other foods, you know, if you have to buy conventional, maybe it's not so bad. So my feeling is if it's financially possible and feasible, as much as you can eat organic, I think the better it is. You know, we know from some of the studies that organic food does tend to be a little bit more nutrient-dense, just that certain pesticides and herbicides do deplete the food of some nutrients. You know, we know in the central part of the United States that the selenium is so depleted out of all the soil that when you eat these foods, you're really getting no selenium at all. So selenium deficiency is actually becoming relatively common, you know, even in a first-world country. So things like that can be problematic and... um, Again, if you're just trying to stay on a budget, uh, be aware of what those dirty dozen foods are. And, you know, if you're going to spend the money on organic, spend it on that. And then the other ones, you know, you can probably compromise a little bit more on.
0: Oh, fantastic. And I'm sure people will find your uh, information very worthwhile on your website. It's very comprehensive. You have uh, so much information there. And as I say, there's your telephone number and your email address. Do you treat people... Only
1: face to face? No, we actually have a fairly uh, broad worldwide uh, connection with people. So uh, I will say that there might be a limitation in what I can do for people who we work remotely with. So we try and coordinate as much with their local doctor on things. Uh, and that really has more to do with certain prescriptions. Um, in the United states uh, you are not allowed to prescribe narcotics uh, remotely that you have to do face- to-face but other than that most other things and a lot of what we're doing is you know diet herbal medicine homeopathy things that are really quite quite benign so so yeah i I, I enjoy working with people remotely if that's possible
0: well thank you very much it's been very interesting responseibly by Ingalls Family. This show was sponsored by Ingalls Family Health, directed by Dr. Darren Ingalls as an international leader in the treatment of Lyme disease, autism and chronic immune disorders, integrating the best of conventional and natural approaches to your health care. Visit DarrenIngallsND.com for more information and to start your journey to better health. The LDN 2017 conference will be held in Portland, Oregon in the US, 22nd to the 24th of September. If you are unable to attend in person, we'll bring the conference to you, regardless where you live. You can participate via our live stream. Check out www.ldn2017.com for early bird discounts. The conference will examine life-changing breakthroughs for treating multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, colitis, autism, irritable bowel syndrome, lupus, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, chronic pain, mental health issues, restless leg syndrome and many other conditions using low-dose naltrexone. For tickets, live stream and sponsorship opportunities, go to www.ldn2017.com any questions or comments you may have please email me linda linda at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.